You are Locked On Bucks, your daily podcast on the Milwaukee Bucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Welcome to Locked on Bucks. I'm Eric Name, Milwaukee Bucks reporter at ESPN Milwaukee. Also the Milwaukee Bucks reporter at ESPN Columbus, which is a delightful little town. Uh, not too far from me. Uh, in Slinger and Madison. I drove through it many times as a child on the way to Madison. So uh, shout out to the ESPN affiliate there in Columbus. Uh, joining me as always is my good friend and the founder of BrewHoop.com, Frank Madden. Frank how you doing, buddy? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm excited for this podcast. I've done um, probably more research for this podcast than any podcast we've ever done. Uh, I guess I guess that's I'm just taking for granted. Watching basketball games isn't really research for us, but <laughs> as far as like actually looking into a topic and um, you know really like just burying myself in the stacks and the history, uh, I feel like I've put in my work because we have a special guest today, Eric. And we probably should have said like uh, the Brown Deer ESPN affiliate today because sure. we've got yeah Brown hey. Brown Deer's very Brown Deer's very own Brew Hoop alum um, and barely barely and B- PhD film student slash I don't know JJ you're you're well more more far more learned in the art of television and movie than than any of us but it is JJ Birch uh, longtime friend of the pod and and friend of ours uh, JJ welcome we're here to talk about movies. And and we've talked about talking about movies with you forever, and it's finally happening. How crazy is that? It's so great to actually be here uh, in this Skype call, not in person. <laughs> but it's so great to be here. Yeah, we've been talking about this for, for a long time. Pretty much since like this podcast started, I've been trying to get on it <laughs> <laughs> to talk about something that wasn't Ersanio Yosova, but I've done it. I'm here. The impossible was... mission is, is completed. Yeah. <laughs> And we've we've shared the two of us have shared because certainly uh, so, so I mean to give people background so if if those of you who maybe maybe recall JJ's work at Brew Hoop it was it was it was sparse you you kind of were mm-hmm. um, you you kind of like put something out like once every two years or so you were kind of mm-hmm. like the Dan, the Daniel Day Lewis of Brew Hoop um, <laughs> in that you would not work for long periods of time and then you would show up and do like a series on like you know, comparing Milwaukee Bucks to Criterion Collection films complete with photoshops um, of of Bucks into Criterion Collection movie shots. Um, mm-hmm. So the 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 payoff was huge, but it was like making a blockbuster <laughs> movie. It could only happen, you know, the, these tent poles could only happen once every few years. And one of the one of the unifying topics, we've had our disagreements, Blade Runner twenty forty nine among them. Um, I'm asleep but, right now, just hearing it. <laughs> but one of the things we've always agreed on, and which we thought in the dead dead zone of summer would be fun to talk about, would be a movie that um, a movie that we that has been universally acclaimed, Mission Impossible Fallout, the sixth uh, sixth movie in the Mission Impossible franchise. But more broadly, Tom Cruise as 
the insane action star that he's evolved into. And we've we've talked about this for a long time. So I know that like sort of the seeds of this have been planted and Eric is similarly on board with this. And I feel like, you know, we're in this weird phase of Tom Cruise's career where I don't know, like it's kind of strange to look back at his filmography because he was obviously like a super like when you think about what he did in the 80s and even like early 90s with, um, you know, a few good men going into even like Jerry Maguire, where he was like sort of this great actor but also super handsome so he was always making these incredible movies but never quite got over the hill like born on the fourth of july all these like you know big movies that um were popular but were not really like action movies and mm-hmm. then he sort of has taken this turn into now being this tremendous action star yet at the same time he still makes damn good movies so i feel like you know if we were going to pick any any star to talk about um I feel like it always had to be Tom Cruise, and I feel like if there's any movie franchise to talk about, it it always had to be Mission Impossible. And thankfully, um, not to give away anything, I think we'll probably talk more generally at first here. But um, this movie lives up to the considerable hype, and um, it's it's a good time to talk about Tom Cruise. I feel like. Yeah. No. Totally. I mean, one of the things with Cruise, I mean, if you look at his filmography too, at the end of the '90s, he started working only with like great directors. Like, he was obsessed with collecting directors. He worked with Cameron Crowe on Maguire. He worked with Stanley Kubrick on his final film. Paul Thomas Anderson with his breakout. He did two movies with Spielberg. And in the last, like, 10 years, pretty much since War of the Worlds and the infamous jumping on the couch on the <laughs> Oprah episode, um, he's moved away from that. He's, he's still hired some pretty great directors. We'll probably talk about them for the mission impossible movies, but he just doesn't work. He hasn't had like a real Oscar role since lions for lambs in 2007 and calling that a real Oscar role is a really big stretch. Um, But he's this man who was obsessed with being this prestige actor. And now he spends full years learning how to fly a helicopter for the end of an action movie as one does as one does he's i mean he's he's perfect for august too i think because we're all looking for something to do and this is someone who is always doing something at this point um even if we don't see it on screen he's probably learning how to fly a spaceship or something right now i was gonna say (laughs) that's the thing that's really interesting about him is that i've just come to expect that in the summer, I'm going to watch a Tom Cruise movie. I don't know exactly what month it'll be. I'm mm-hmm. not sure what what he'll be playing. Um, but I know that I'm going to watch a Tom Cruise movie. And I'm trying to think through times where I was was disappointed. And I mean, it's pretty difficult to find them. Like in the last 10 years, pretty much every sun, like every summer, you're going to just pop in to a movie theater, watch a Tom Cruise flick, and it's going to be relatively carefree uh it'll probably be pretty intense and he'll do some crazy stunts and at the end of the day i'm i'm generally pleased with my movie going experience yeah that's true even some of i mean i'm not going to we'll we'll try to avoid discussion of the mummy um but even something like night and day his 2010 movie it's great i loved it it's really good yeah it has some there are definitely some problems i have with it uh but none of them are cruz's fault cruz is like committed in that role in a way that is just like it's a it's one of his funnier performances but it's not like he's winking all the time he's like steadfast in his commitment to being a spy but (laughs) in this scenario that just doesn't 
doesn't require that sort of commitment. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, this year with Fallout, last year American Made with was a lot of fun. Uh, did not love Jack Reacher 2, but the first Jack Reacher is a great Saturday afternoon. Um, either wholesomely with your dad or less wholesomely hungover. And then uh, Edge of Tomorrow, Rogue Nation, those are masterpieces. So to ca- kind of calibrate everybody's, I mean, we talked a little bit about it there just now, but um, I-, I mean, I feel like I grew up, like, w- like when I think about watching movies, um, late 80s, really more early 90s, probably early to mid 90s, mm-hmm. kind of when I became sort of aware of Tom Cruise as like a movie star. And as we were saying, like, he was doing kind of a lot of like serious movies. I mean, everybody, I mean, maybe like Top Gun people think of as obviously sort of like his kind of breakout role, which is more of a action drama, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you even categorize it, but like a great movie, but maybe not like, you know, not like high art. Um, Erotic film. <laughs> <laughs> That beach volleyball scene is, uh, yeah. Um, and I, I still can't believe they're coming out with a Top Gun 2 in which he's like a, an instructor, apparently. So I'm like very fascinated to see how that <laughs> turns out. But, um, but yeah, he kind of like just did these, you know, kind of alternated, you know, the these, I don't even know how to describe them because I feel like a lot of the movies he made in like the late 80s, early 90s, like you kind of take for granted that they happened and they were good and they were like popular. But like, I yeah. don't know, like does Born on the Fourth of July, like, get made or get noticed now or does it even get tom cruise or somebody like him to play it like i don't know like i feel like when we talk a lot about sort of like the franchisation of films now and Mm -hmm. i feel like a lot of these movies like a few good men which you know is one that i would highlight as kind of one of my early you know favorite um tom cruise roles i feel like and early is relative right i mean he was super well established that was 92 i think yeah 92 um like you kind of take it for granted. It's like a huge m- movie with huge stars and people know, you know, like the scene where he's, in, he's um, got Jack Nicholson on the stand, all this stuff. But I don't know. It is interesting to think like, you know, if that movie was made now, like does it kind of become, does it get put into that level of, of, um, you know, of hugeness, right? Like, I don't, I don't know. It mm-hmm. just seems like he, he was able to really kind of toe the line between like great movies where he was highlight, his talents were highlighted. And then also, actually like these movies made a lot of money right even though he was not making mm. what we now think of as like sort of like you know sort of necessarily like tentpole type action type movies that he's evolved to now and it's just kind of amazing i mean i think let me let me i'll give you guys some of my kind of favorite um non-mission impossible kind of roles and, and movies you guys can maybe chime in i know you've kind of hit some some already jj but just sort of as for kind of background um probably like mid to late 80s tom cruise is a little bit like before i really was watching movies like i I've seen Cocktail. I don't have opinions on it. I've seen Rain Man. <laughs> I know, like, I think of Tom Cruise. Like, I've seen, like, and I've seen, like, bits and pieces of Rain Man over the last decade again, maybe. And I feel like he probably had a much harder role than Dustin Hoffman in that movie because, mm-hmm. you know, like, he was actually playing, you know, well, I won't get into it. But I think Tom Cruise's role <laughs> in that movie was kind of underrated. But, like, as I think through, like, a lot of the kind of his movies, you know, I mean, Few Good Men. I don't. I don't know what else you can say about that. I mean, the, to me, I think a lot of these movies, like what makes them like the real Tom Cruise role, is like he has that that portion, that scene where he's just going into full intensity, like angry, kind of determined Tom Cruise, and he's really like going for it, kind of Tom mm-hmm. Cruise. And you have that obviously in A Few Good Men. You have that in Born on the Fourth of July. Um, I, you mentioned Paul Thomas Anderson. So Magnolia was. A movie I saw my freshman year of college. I thought it was amazing. I saw it twice in wow. the theaters. The best I time mean, to see it. <laughs> I mean, it's a three-hour-plus movie, so seeing it once in the theater is insane. <laughs> <And> twice is, 
probably a signal of, of mental illness, but um, I did it anyway. And um, his role in that is, you know, kind of, I mean, it's a, it's a strange role, but it, I thought he, he nails it. Like he's, he's amazing in it and it's a really fascinating movie. And then, you know, you kind of go like the last like 15 years, I think is where I, I kind of think of as more like modern Tom Cruise and in, in year 2000, so the first mission impossible comes out in 1996 and I actually rewatched that recently. And, it's so weird to compare it to the current ones because, I mean, it's a Brian De Palma film. It's much more – I don't even know how to describe it. I'm not – again, JJ, I defer to you to be more descriptive of this. But, well, like, I mean, but it's, it's, it's like a different like, movie. It's not an action film. Yeah, exactly. There's like the, the whole helicopter sequence at the end and stuff like that. But it's a it's a spy drama. And it has these like heavy moments too of him – like weighing all the deaths of his old team and like realizing these things internally. It's all about like sort of Ethan Hunt's psychology, which we forgot about, I think, until this most recent movie in the, the franchise. But yeah, it's a lot smaller and it was treated to, um, it was actually treated much more like a, a prestige film. Uh, I mean, it had a summer release, but it was seen as being like uh Cruz's first shot it was the first movie he produced along with his partner Paula Wagner um but yeah it was him it was a serious film for adults like that's how it was publicized that's what it was supposed to be yeah and so I'll, I'll go through just really quick I mean Minority Report I thought was phenomenal that's 2002 um I I even like The Last Samurai do I have to feel guilty about that I don't know 2003 <laughs> um Collateral in which he plays like an old Tom oh. Cruise with with uh Jamie Foxx like I thought that was a really interesting movie. And then you kind of just like trip through it. You know, he has, I, I, to be honest, I didn't ever, I didn't really like Tropic Thunder. He has kind of a random cameo as an old guy, which was funny. But, um, but I feel like since then, like the movies that aren't good or that aren't interesting, I feel like you could tell we're going to be that like Valkyrie might be a good movie. I don't know. I had no interest in seeing it. Never even thought about watching it. Wasn't really very successful. Um, Rock of Ages. Didn't even think about seeing it. He apparently Ooh, plays some, some same. movie star. You know, whatever. That's, like I just, I just skipped it. But like, he's Jack shirtless Re- for so long. <laughs> and man, twenty twelve Cruz's body was not, not there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's funny. Mission Impossible three is two thousand six. Ghost Protocol two thousand eleven, um, which I feel like Ghost Protocol kind of kicked off the modern um, kind of Mission Impossible. Like I feel like the yeah. feel of Ghost Protocol. Uh, Rogue Nation and Fallout, like all have a very similar feel, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about. And then, as you said, Jack Reacher was like the Jack Reacher movies for me. I've never seen one in a theater, but they're like my like ideal. Oh crap, this is on HBO type movie, and mm-hmm. really enjoyed them. Um, I actually saw Oblivion in the theaters, and I'm a sci-fi fan, and that's like probably about as like Oblivion and, and Edge of Tomorrow and back to back years are probably about as sci-fi as I guess we've seen Tom Cruise go, and I, I really enjoyed both of them. And then Rogue Nation 2015, another Jack Reacher movie. And then, yeah, we skipped The Mummy. <laughs> and then American Made, which I thought was really enjoyable, too. Um, followed by Mission Impossible Fallout, of course, this year. So, yeah, he's had this just bizarre... Well, maybe not bizarre, but it's been a really meandering filmography. And um, I don't know, it's just been like... Uh, it's just, like, amazing how how good... Like, every year, every other year, there's, like, something that's like, wow, that was awesome type, you think. I mean, it's strange that 
he's getting to blossom as an action star at this point in his career. Like as you go through like the timeline of just being a human being, uh, you know, if you're going to be doing (laughs) action and you're going to be trying to do a lot of crazy stunts, like you should probably do them while you're young and your body can handle it. And instead, like he did obviously have some, some of those movies where he did some actiony stuff earlier in his career. And then he like turned into a very serious actor. Uh, and then all of a sudden now it's action star again. Like how, how does that, I don't even, like, the, the peaks and valleys and kind of the career arc just doesn't really make a ton of sense. And I, I just wanted to highlight two in here um, as we went through. I watched Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, I don't even know. I, I'm trying to think when I, I texted I JJ about DMs, it. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> like, we were talking about it, and, oh, my gosh, it, it's, like, just the most strange, it, it's the most exhausting movie to watch because it, truly feels like no one had any fun while shooting it like tom cruise pushed to his absolute limits as an actor and like as he's going through it just like and then you read about it and jj sent me some helpful articles uh, but like as i read about it it was like oh my gosh it makes total sense like he was absolutely miserable shooting this it it's what the longest shot movie of all time like yeah it was the longest continuous film shoot at like 400 days and like like it shows in the work like tom cruise by the end of it you can just tell is like what on earth does kubrick want at this moment i have no idea how to do this and like to me it's just like this crazy insane sort of awesome thing to watch because it it is just like a a test of the human condition and whether or not you can get through it. And obviously uh, if you know the movie, that's kind of the goal of it as well. Like how, how long can that all go? Uh, so I thought that mm-hmm. was a really interesting movie and I think does a nice job highlighting the, the idea of super serious actor, Tom Cruise, that I'm really going to do this. Uh, and then I think edge of tomorrow is the one on the opposite end of it, where it's just like this awesome blockbuster action movie where tom cruise is fantastic in it emily blunt is awesome in it and just a movie that i totally love and adore uh and that like edge of tomorrow i was leaning towards loving everything tom cruise action star edge of tomorrow totally sold me on it and at that moment i was like yep i'm all in from now on every summer i'm watching a tom cruise movie and i couldn't be happier about it so you're are you sure you like Tom Cruise? Those are his two roles where he's like beat up the most. He I mean, dies maybe, so many maybe. times. <laughs> Edge of Tomorrow. I mean, maybe I am a little sadistic. I don't know. You're like, I like Tom Cruise when he dies, and I like Tom Cruise when he is sexually frustrated <laughs> and stumbles in to a gold mask orgy where he is almost murdered. <laughs> yes, those are those are my favorite roles. Yes. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, those are those are two iconic ones. Um, one of the things I was thinking when you guys were both talking about Cruz's filmography is like he he does sort of make his name post Top Gun on serious adult dramas that also make a ton of money, and it made me think of other stars of his sort of era like that, like someone like George Clooney who can make something like Ocean's Eleven which doesn't have, I mean, it's a heist film. We don't see many heist films, although we had a couple this year. Um, And just makes incredible money based very much so on, like, the star themselves. But, like, those stars then don't really have those movies to make anymore. So someone like Clooney hasn't been in many movies lately, and if he has, they're ones he's produced and directed himself. 
Whereas Cruz, who is the same age as George Clooney, they're separated by like less than a year, has spent the last decade like climbing the world's tallest building <laughs> and like holding his breath for eight minutes or whatever he did in Rogue Nation, which is just like like there's often this common thought that like we don't have movie stars anymore and like superhero movies are great evidence of that. Like the superheroes themselves, I, I think a lot of the people who play superheroes are super talented actors. Robert Downey Jr., Chris Hemsworth, all these people. Um, but they're behind a mask for a lot of the movie. And they're playing an iconic character that's existed before. They're not really developing like the Chris Hemsworth movie um, or the Tom Holland movie or even the Mark Ruffalo movie anymore. But Cruz's movies are Cruz movies. And he's always had the movies centered around him, but in the last 10 years, they've been centered around, like, his body and pushing it to the edge as far as it can go. So we can talk about the Mission Impossibles. I'll just give a shout out. I love all the movies you guys have mentioned. Um, one movie I think, like, Whole Couch Jump Be Damned is really, really, really great is actually his second movie he made with Steven Spielberg, War of the Worlds. Um which is such a, a strange film, has its own share of problems, um, but had this whole idea, both Cruz and screenwriter David Kep and director Steven Spielberg wanted this to be sort of like the definitive post 9-11 document. Uh, and if you actually go back and watch, uh, especially the, the first half of the film before it becomes this claustrophobic thing where he's trying to protect his daughter, um, the, the first half of that movie is horrifying. Uh, and Cruz is so small uh, and doing none of the action hero sort of stuff he does. He does his running. He's always going to run. <laughs> um, but he's running through, like, the dust of, like, people who have just been zapped and murdered in front of him. And he's scared the entire time. And one of the things I, I love about, about Cruz, um, even though he, he seems no longer scared, uh, scared, he's reached whatever echelon of Scientology that eliminates all fear um, but in in a lot of his best roles he's willing to look small he is a very small person we know <laughs> uh, in real life but something like Eyes Wide Shut or War of the Worlds or Edge of Tomorrow these are movies where he's Tom Cruise he's a movie star he looks great uh, don't pay attention to the asymmetrical teeth but he looks awesome uh, but he's also doesn't always have all the answers. He doesn't know exactly what he's doing and he could face serious repercussions for that. The loss of his family, the loss of his wife, whatever it is. As we kind of transition into mission impossible. Um, and FYI, so as there's going to be a lot of spoilers, everyone. Yeah, if you, if, you're, if you haven't watched <laughs> any of the mission impossible movies, I don't think we've done it too bad as of yet, but if you've watched <laughs> any of the mission impossible movies, you're about to get a whole lot of spoilers. So, um, mm -hmm. if you're trying to knock that out on a weekend, uh, you know, maybe save this portion of the podcast for after that, but go ahead. Frank. Yeah. If, if you, and if you haven't seen mission Impossible, like you probably turn this off, like 18 <laughs> seconds into the podcast. Why so, did you like, turn this on? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But actually, as you guys were talking, I mean, you know, the line from uh, from Top Gun where Val Kilmer says, you know, your ego is writing checks, your body can't cash. It feels like Tom Cruise has basically been fighting to um, dispel that, like especially in the last like decade where um, and I know uh, and listen to some of the Ringer podcasts, 
they've talked about Chris Ryan and uh, in particular sort of talks about the idea of sort of the Jackie Chanification of Tom Cruise. And I feel like there's a lot to that. Like, you know, I don't think 15 years ago we would have predicted that Tom Cruise would evolve into a guy who basically risks his life and much of sort of the spectacle of his super successful movies now have to do with kind of risking his life every, (laughs) you know, multiple times per movie. Um, but so as we think about mission impossible fallout, um, and so let let me, let's maybe transition that. Obviously we can come back to other stuff if you guys want, but, um, this is the sixth mission impossible movie. It's the second one in a row written and directed by, um, Christopher McQuarrie, um, who, kind of probably shot to fame um, as the screenwriter um, uh, for The Usual Suspects. So, I mean, Christian McQuarrie kind of has been around a while um, and has been working with Tom Cruise on a number of various projects over the last decade, really. So they they have a lot of history together. And I think one of the things that was interesting to me, um, as I said, I listened to a bunch of podcasts with Christopher McQuarrie and, and Chris McQuarrie loves doing podcasts. Okay, we probably could have gotten him on this podcast if we had asked. Um, I know he unfortunately left Twitter just recently, but we could have we could have wrangled him. He he's like literally has done like I listened to like a two and a half hour podcast of his. On, I think it was like Empire Film or something like that. Like it was driving up to Dallas for work one week, and I was just like, oh my god, this is super long. But I was like, all right, I'll just listen to it as I drive, and um, it was very interesting. But I thought one of the interesting things he said was like, oh well. You know, they really had to like Tom Cruise really had to push him to come back to direct um, the, la- the this newest film because kind of the idea of these movies has been that every movie is, is uh, directed by a different director. And, mm-hmm. you know, kind of going through, you mentioned Brian De Palma does the first one, which is very different from John Woo directing the second one, which is probably yep. aged the worst of, uh, of any of these films. Um, and then kind of like a little bit of a hiatus. And then J.J. Abrams comes back and kind of. I don't know if I'd say resuscitates the franchise, but kind of maybe modernizes the franchise a bit um, in Mission Impossible uh, 3. Um, and then, oh, who, who did number four? I'm now, now I'm Brad Bird. Brad Bird, okay. The 10 greatest living directors, Frank. All right, I feel like we'll hear more about that. But, um, but yeah, so Brad Bird does four, but McQuarrie comes in and helps with the script. So he was like really involved in that one. And then these last two, Rogue Nation and Fallout. And like I said, I kind of view these last three as like having a very kind of similar feel like the Ethan hunt we see in these movies feels, I don't know, fairly consistent. Like you can kind of draw the trajectory of him through these three, like a lot of the, you know, the, the kind of cast. Um, I think, I think through all these three, you know, sort of the, the, the core three of, um, Ving Rhames, Simon Pegg and Tom Cruise are kind of consistent through them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they rotate characters obviously through, through the three, but, um, they feel like they're, they're kind of, of a, of a piece like there's sort of almost like a trilogy ish feel to it. And so I thought it was interesting when, when McCory was saying, Oh, well I wanted this movie to be different. And so like he talked about bringing in like all different, I think he brought in a new director of photography and like all, basically yep. the entire crew was sort of turned over on fallout to try to make it feel like a different movie. And it's a little weird. Cause I was like a non like film expert. So JJ, I'm going to lean on you here. Like I didn't really pick up on necessarily a lot of, like oh this movie feels like a different director like i didn't really get that feel from it mm-hmm. but i don't say that as like an insult like i felt like this was basically kind of the culmination of ghost protocol was awesome rogue nation was even better and this movie to me is the best of all the mission impossibles um but especially of these last three which have felt like they've been kind of building and and i don't know it just feels like 
where they've gotten to with this movie. I mean, it's, you know, 97% of Rotten Tomatoes, like, you know, the biggest grossing one so far. It feels like it has it has peaked. I don't know what they can do to top this movie, um, but I don't know. I mean, what? how did you guys feel coming out of this movie? Because I know we all loved it. I, I haven't talked to anybody who didn't love it, um, but how did you kind of feel coming out of it in terms of where it kind of ranked and how it kind of stacked up to the other Mission Impossible movies? One of the things I will say, just if you're trying to spot the differences between this one and the last one, I do think uh ghost protocol rogue nation and fallout are all pretty similar in terms of feel and even structure um and especially their turn towards stunts i mean the first three movies in this franchise uh there's the motorcycles in mission impossible 2 but i really think the best stunt work in that movie is just Cruz's hair flying through the air uh (laughs) one has a helicopter a green screen helicopter that has not aged very well Three has the uh, gif we always see online of Cruz running across the bridge and he's sort of flown into a car. Um, but the stunts start with Ghost Protocol, where he climbs the Burj Khalifa. Uh, and then there's the uh, incredible sandstorm that follows that in like a 20-minute sequence. If you're watching it on FX, uh, it's like a 40-minute sequence with commercials. <laughs> um and then, yeah, uh, Rogue Nation, uh, motorcycles come back. He is riding on those motorcycles because he is insane. Uh, and he holds his breath for eight minutes in a scene that, in my mind, I thought would just be like an eight-minute long take, but has a ton of cuts. So you can't even tell that he learned to hold his breath for longer than almost any other human. But he did do it, uh, if you believe Macquarie and Cruz. Uh, and then for this one, he, did, uh, he learned how to fly a helicopter, but he performed a halo jump, which is a <laughs> military uh, protocol to covertly drop an agent into a foreign nation by having a high altitude launch, so 30,000 feet or higher in the air. Uh, and calling it the air is strange because there's no oxygen up there. <laughs> uh, and then opening the chute, um, I believe it's under three or 4,000 feet from the ground. So you jump from really, really high, and then open it really close to the ground. And uh, Cruz apparently did that stunt 80 plus times and would have to take (laughs) oxygen for an hour. So he avoided like epoxy or something when he was back up in the air. Um, So yeah, there's this move towards stunt work. Um, The look and feel I think changes a little bit. Uh, Rogue Nation is I think the most classically constructed My favorite sequence in that movie is the opera sequence, which is just like a masterful sequence of color blocking and staging in terms of like coherently telling us where everyone is, using colors and framings to make sure we know exactly when things are happening and who's involved, um, and just setting up like these three separate pieces and then watching it move and the whole time feeling like I'm never confused, I'm seeing everything I need to be seeing, and the tension just ratchets up um, so, so well. Um, this one, I think the thing that looks different, is actually looks a lot like the third movie to me. Um, it has a ton of lens flares. Um, the last movie, the last two were shot by Robert Ellswit, Paul Thomas Anderson cinematographer. Um, Oscar winner, I think, for There Will Be Blood. Um, this one was shot by Rob Hardy, who's most well known for shooting uh, Ex Machina. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of like 
the framing includes like a bunch of ceilings. <laughs> it feels a lot more claustrophobic at moments. And then, yeah, a lot of orange. This movie is super, super orange, whereas the last one I think was a lot more red and blue. Um, but yeah, these three have felt like of a piece and leaving Fallout, uh, it was one of those movies where people just laughed at the end of action sequences. <laughs> and I don't know the last time I've seen an action movie where people were like giggling at not being able to like comprehend that what was happening <laughs> on screen was actually happening on screen and had happened pro-filmically in front of the camera as well. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you just, uh, in uh, I think what when I think about why I enjoyed it so much, it just seems like kind of the peak of a lot of things that the Mission Impossible franchise does, like, obviously when you're thinking about stunts like that was kind of the peak of all of that you think about uh kind of benji's progression from the th- third movie on like he's uh, part of why i've started to enjoy this more is simon Pegg in that role like he's become a larger part of it and like you think about the technology in this one and all the things that he's able to do like it does just keep going up and up and up and i feel like when you think about all the things that kind of peaked all of all the stunts, like all the technology, uh, kind of all the the parts, and and I guess also like getting to kind of know Ving Rhames' character more as the the series has gone on. Like you get a little bit more of him. You still don't know a ton about him, but like you are getting more and more of him, and like the relationship like him and Ethan have, and, and you know the opening scene where he's like, ah, I can't give him up, and you just think through like all of that, and everything is just gotten intensified uh, to in follow like man like it it almost had me in tears by the end of it like it was actually like (laughs) pulling at heartstrings and i think as you think through this this mission impossible series it's not often that you actually kind of get that emotional connection to these characters but in this one by the end of it like you kind of had it and it, it is because i think all of these things have been intensifying and multiplying on each other that by the time you get to this sixth movie, like there's just so much that goes into it from essentially every different angle. Yeah, I was going to say, um, jumping on JJ, what you said about Rob Hardy is, um, you know, the, the cinematographer is because one of the things that McQuarrie brought up in one of these, you know, million hours of uh, in, uh, interviews <laughs> that I heard, um, he talked about like how Rob Hardy wants, like his background is like he wants to shoot everything in 35 and 50 millimeter lenses. And and like, uh, you know, he was saying like, well, I, I generally start at 75. Like, so it was a totally different sort of experience. Mm-hmm. But McCory wanted to defer to Rob Hardy because, again, trying to bring like a different feel to the movie. And then in some cases, they had to compromise just because of like shooting action sequences. Like you couldn't do it the way that they kind of originally wanted to or the way he originally mm-hmm. wanted to. Um, but I thought that was really interesting. And I think, Eric, what you brought up, though, about like kind of the like kind of emotional heft, I think what is so valuable about this being a franchise and not being just like a standalone film is that, you know, these movies and one of the interesting things is, and we're talking before the podcast, like when you listen to how Christopher McQuarrie like wrote and directed this movie, basically they come up with sort of like the broad idea of the movie, like kind of like roughly what's going to happen. And then they come up with like the set pieces. Right. And in this movie is like, just there's very little downtime between these massive action set pieces from, from one to the other. Right. And that's sort of now the trademark of these, of these movies. And, but it's remarkable how, even though Christopher McQuarrie is the, the screenwriter and the director. So it's not like he's 
fighting himself, right? And he works with Tom Cruise from the start on, on all these things. They're constantly make, doing stuff on the fly. They're figuring out how pieces like fit together and, oh, well, what do we, how do we do this here? And then, oh, what if, oh, hey, we just saw this, you know, this part of Paris yesterday. And can we go shoot a huge action scene there, right? Um, it's remarkable how much of this movie is sort of pieced together on the fly. And the thing he said was, you know, so much of it is, like shooting a Mission Impossible movie is like making a Mission Impossible, or sorry, making a Mission Impossible movie is like being in a Mission Impossible movie where it feels very improvised from scene to scene, even though, you know, the big beats are going to have to be drawn out in advance. Um, but what I thought was kind of awesome about this movie was that they don't have to spend a lot of time, and this is where it's, it helps the fact that you know Ving Rams, you know Simon Pegg's character, and probably most importantly in this one, um, you know the Ilsa Faust character played by Rebecca Ferguson from the last one, who I thought, like, I feel like her introduction has been, like, really huge to making me mm-hmm. really like the last two more than, um, like, uh, Ghost Protocol, for instance, because I feel like adding her as this, and this often been brought up of, of sort of an equal of, of the Ethan Hunt and having kind of this female character who's, you know, kind of working against him but then working with him and sort of playing in these sort of like liminal spaces where you're not always sure what her motives are that i think that's been like a huge thing and in this one i thought they did really well like you don't have necessarily the fun of getting to know who she is and what she's about which is what i thought made rogue nation really interesting but you like have enough background that you like care about her and you understand that there's a significance between these characters and like the scene where ving rames tells um, Bing Rames has like two, I thought, really terrific scenes in this movie. And you don't really think of Bing Rames as being more than just sort of like, you know, Bing Rames being himself, like kind of funny, whatever. Um, but like the scene he has with uh, Rebecca Fer- Ferguson's character where he's like explaining to her that he's that Ethan Hunt's only cared about two women in his life. And it has this like it has like real emotional yeah. gravity to it. And I didn't like really see that coming. But I thought that was like a really nice it was a really nice sort of scene to kind of tie together, you know, really going into the last, really the last sort of act of the movie. And then the scenes with Michelle Monaghan, who's, um, uh, you know, Tom Cruise's former wife, right. Who's from, I guess was introduced in the third one. And she's Mm -hmm. kind of been like just floating around in the background, but she comes back and actually plays a real, I don't want to say central part, but she actually really is in this movie. Um, Mm -hmm. and like the, the interplay between Ving Rhames and her and sort of because they know each other and you actually, like it's sort of mostly been hinted at sort of their relationship, but then you kind of see it actually. And Michelle Monaghan like gives a very like Michelle Monaghan sort of performance, even though she's only in it for five minutes or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it was really, it, they did the, I thought a really great job of kind of tying together, like, you know, the core team and they don't have to establish that stuff. Like you already have the experience. And I think that's what makes what's nice about a franchise movie is, you already have the, the the positive baggage of like okay like I love you know I like these characters I know they've been through all this stuff together you don't have to do a bunch of exposition explaining it um, and with Rebecca Ferguson's character as well like she's still new and evolving and you don't really know everything that's going to happen with her and Ethan Hunt but you know enough now and so you know it's it's sort of a different type of movie for her than last one where you're getting to know her but now it's like well you know that she's badass and awesome and you love this character and they kind of get to actually like build on it and you know it's 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 interesting because like they sort of landed at the end where they bring closure to sort of the michelle monaghan former wife that he we know he can't be with sort of thing um and also sort of this like strain thing with not strain but you know the well they can't like ilsa faust and ethan can't be together while 
the Michelle Monaghan thing is still floating out there. So it's sort of interesting because even though there's no like, you know, all these movies like they really have like sort of desexualized Tom Cruise in a lot of ways, you know, mm-hmm. um, but like they kind of landed in a really like really good like emotional place. I feel like it was like very satisfying because it's like, yeah, there's no like sex scene. There's no like whatever. Right. I mean, is it? It's very PG in in terms of that, but it has like a lot of I think kind of the emotional underpinnings of something that like actually is really something you care about and it's really interesting. And you know, I'm guessing there will be another movie. I shudder to think how they can top this, but um, they've kind of now changed the chapter a little bit, which I think is one great thing about this movie. And again, I don't know what they would do kind of for the next movie, but um, I thought like the way they let you know those two female characters kind of be so central to a lot of what was happening i think was you know Mm -hmm. great especially for the last movie as well but in this one i thought it was even even bigger yeah i mean one of the things like the the fact that michelle monaghan's role in this movie is so central uh i mean she's in the first shot in cruz's dream where he's getting married by the mountain that will later become the site (laughs) of a possible (laughs) nuclear holocaust uh and uh like the fact that she's so central and so good in this movie is a miracle because mission impossible 3 has a lot a lot a lot of merits but the convincing male female relationship in that movie is Cruz and then his recruit played by carrie russell like the domestic scenes in three for me do not work at all like he's at like a party with like dentists or something and i'm like this is not him this is the guy who like goes in the plane or he has the long hair like he has never held a beer before when he has a beer in those certain scenes it doesn't make any sense but here um one of the things that's so interesting and like it's happened a lot when we're talking about uh in general it happens with me when i'm talking about performers instead of character names but I think a lot of the joy in these films is from watching performers and not characters. It's watching Cruz do the Cruz thing. It's watching Ving Rhames do the Ving Rhames thing, which is different in this one. And like the tear he holds in his right eye during that conversation (laughs) with Rebecca Ferguson is just like, it says so much. It says so much more than the words that he's actually saying. Um, it is about watching Simon Pegg do his Simon Pegg thing, be funny out of his depth. It's watching Alec Baldwin do his Alec Baldwin thing. Although his death scene in this one um, may not be the most convincing or <laughs> tear-jerking sort of death scene I've seen. But in Rogue Nation especially, when he says, like, Ethan Hunt is the manifest of destiny or something like that. <laughs> It's that sort of like tapping into that comedic persona, and then Angela. Actually, I think I think that's a I think that's a line that um, that Eric has actually used about Johnny O'Brien. So I'm not sure if that's even a line. That's our that's our that's our locked on Bucks moment of the day. Okay, now we can go back. Um, And then Angela Bassett too. Like Angela Bassett is doing the Angela Bassett thing, right? What is she there to do? She's there to say that's the job. It's that sort of thing. It's about her line reading less so than like, what are her motivations? Like I know her motivations from the start. I know she is someone who works by the book, like Alec Baldwin did in the last movie and other people have in the movies before. But by the end of it, she's going to be convinced by the IMF's like sort of gumption and be like, I'm kind of want to get in on this thing now that Alec Baldwin's dead. Um, And I think sort of like, the elephant or i guess like the extremely muscular beautifully mustached <laughs> elephant in the room we haven't talked about yet is henry cavill who is 
playing a Henry Cavill type. Like he is kind of like lame in a like distinctly American way, which is strange because he's not American. Uh, <laughs> but he has this sort of like stoicism. He's got the square jaw. You see why they cast him as Superman, I think, in this movie. Um, he plays things sort of like by the book. He's very like willing to use violence in a way that Cruz and the rest of the IMF isn't, which is his distinct, like his distinguishing factor. But he's like a young Cruz sort of like comparison, right? You're supposed to think like, okay, Cruz is the action star. He's tiny. He figures things out at the last minute. Cavill seems like the guy who has everything together. He's muscular. He is unlike Cruz in these movies, incredibly sexual, I think. Um, And, uh, Yeah, but he's playing a stock type. Like, I don't know if if you guys were the same way, but was there a moment you were like, oh, maybe Henry Cavill's a good guy and he's really going to figure out what the IMF has to do? He's kind of telecasted early on. And then when that switch comes, it's seen how he performs that switch, less so than like feeling like, okay, the switch happened. Like, the whole narrative has changed. It's like, no, now we're entering a different phase of the narrative, which I find so interesting. I thought he acted the hell out of that role. I mean, there was certainly times where I'm thinking of the scene where they open the door in front of the uh, police officer. And, like, in that moment, you're thinking, like, oh, maybe he sees Tom Cruise's way here. Like, he's figured out Ethan Hunt's got it all figured out that, you know, you don't always have to use force and, you know, be so violent that, you know, maybe you can find a way out of this. And then, obviously, it all unravels and you're like, what's going on? And, you know, you're trying to figure out who he is and what he's all about. But, like, there are all those moments where I would agree, JJ, like, there were times where I was like, okay, maybe this is him, like underneath ethan hunt's wing like he's figuring out how to not be so violent and he's figuring out how to use a little bit more tact and uh he 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 understands that you know you don't always have to burst in and and do all this stuff and maybe he's learning something from ethan hunt and then obviously uh you have all of that go sideways but I, i just thought he was fantastic not to mention that they had the best fight scene of any Mission Impossible movie in the bathroom. Oh, like, I, we need to talk about that for so long. Because, <laughs> good God, is it great. Um, it, it is just an incredible scene. And I, I can't think of, now that I've seen Henry Cavill do it, I don't know who I could have possibly even thought about casting in that role and getting as much out of it as he did. The, I was say, one the of machine the- gun arms are improvisation as well, like yes. you were mentioning, Frank. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Christopher Quarry actually like, and so if you got, if you know anything about this movie, you've probably seen the bathroom scene where um, Henry Cavill starts walking toward a guy to to fight him, and like basically, you know, pumps his arms, basically like his fist to basically ready to to duke out, to basically just like go fisticuffs. <laughs> and and Chris, it was kind of funny because Christopher McQuarrie like almost like scoffed that he was like, I don't like, I don't know, he just did that, like <laughs> like what's the big deal? And it's like, no, man. That's awesome. Um, that's the but, movie. Yeah, and and I thought that 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 like half second of improvisation like probably is like the truest manifestation of the line, which I thought pretty much set up the whole dynamic between the two characters, which is when Angela Bassett says, "You prefer a scalpel, I prefer a hammer," and mm-hmm. that's 
that's pretty much the story, right? Tom Cruise is yeah. like small, and I appreciated that Tom Cruise, despite being like known for being small, like they didn't hesitate to cast like Superman in this movie to, put, <laughs> know, to like yeah. to literally underscore <laughs> that like yeah, Tom Cruise isn't that big. Um, and I thought it was interesting, like listening to Christopher McQuarrie talk, like they actually were totally fine, sort of telegraphing that he was going to be the bad guy, and they he kind of made a joke how um, it was like. He has a mustache, so of course he's a bad guy. You know, like they, like they and, all the bad guys have mustaches in this movie. And one of the one of the funny parts is one of the interesting things is like as as I was listening, and they would, you know, you listen to how they make this movie, and obviously a lot of it is sort of rewritten and changed based on like, okay, they get to you know Paris, and then they're seeing, oh, let's do a scene here, or they do this and that. Um, and I thought one of the kind of interesting things was. They also talk. He also talks a lot about how like test screenings play a big role. So as they're like, you know, they have different versions of cuts of the film. They're like having average people actually watch it and react and tell them like, well, this doesn't make sense or that doesn't make sense. And it seemed like from some of that, like they decided like, well, we don't want to like they didn't want to kind of make it too like, oh, this guy's going to be a good guy. Like and I thought that was kind of interesting because I think when before the movie came out. There was some talk of like, oh, well, Jeremy Renner's character had been like, you know, in the previous two <laughs> movies was sort of like groom, being groomed as like, well, maybe he can replace Tom Cruise. And then they said like, oh, oh, Jeremy Renner can't be in this movie. So then they had to kind of change tax. And it was like, oh, well, OK, now Henry Cavill's kind of stepping into the Jeremy Renner role. So it was like I was thrown a little bit like I was like, so is he going to be, I guess, a good guy? But in the in the trailer, even, I mean, you see him firing a machine gun at Tom Cruise in a helicopter, which we yeah. know is like <laughs> the end of the movie. So. They were, I think they were actually pretty comfortable from listening to McCory, like actually not have it be a huge secret. And that's why they, you know, pl- I mean, the, the, the scene where it, I don't know how, like, what was it like a third end of the movie where he gives the uh, non broken phone that was supposedly off the John Lark, you know, stand in character yep. in the bathroom. And at that point, it's like, OK, like he's up to something. He's probably trying to frame Tom Cruise. Something is like a miss here. And again, like I would agree. Like I don't know if I was a hundred percent sure what his motives were. If he was just like pure bad guy at that point. But yeah, right. at that point, then you're not you're not surprised when you know Superman with a mustache turns out to be <laughs> um, you know a bad guy. But I thought I thought my only the only thing I kind of struggled with a little bit, like as I think through, like and again, like plot wise, you know, these movies obviously have to move fast, and so you can't kind of dwell on things. But um, I thought the one thing that, and this is a general thing about like these spy movies where there's like the, you know, supervillain guy, like what's in it for the supervillain? And, and, and with Henry Cavill's character, I was like, (laughs) it was kind of, yeah, it was kind of like the first movie where in the first movie, John Voight, um, when he's trying to tell Tom Cruise about why Kittredge, who's, he's basically trying to make it sound like Kittredge, who's like their boss in the IMF is, oh, he's the bad guy even though he's actually talking about himself and he's telling the story of like, you know, the agents, you know, these, these people who like risk their life and then they realize it's just a bureaucracy and like, they're just tools, blah, blah, blah. And so he's like telling the story to Tom Cruise lying to make it sound like Kittredge who's played by Henry Cerny in the first movie is like, this is him. But then Tom Cruise realizes that it's actually him talking about himself. And there's kind of a similar, kind of a similar thing in this movie where Henry Cavill is telling the story of, Oh, well, I think it's to Angela Bassett where he's saying like, oh, well, you can, you know, these these guys like 
you know, they're they're um, you know that they they serve this machine and then they realize that like it's it's for nothing and blah 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 and then you realize like he's actually kind of talking I, I guess he was really talking about himself and mm-hmm. you know the manifesto was essentially like you know I I think you guys correct me wrong but it sounds like it was implied he was behind the manifesto which yeah some, some of these things yeah some of these things are like a little unclear to me um but you know because part of me is also like all right I know he's like CIA badass guy but like. Does like the super handsome CIA badass like who looks like Superman like is that really the guy who's going to become like the rogue supervillain like I don't know I feel like he probably imagine, could have it pretty good like imagine him sitting down and writing a manifesto yeah <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't see that is it in a word doc do you think he's a Google right, doc yeah. guy I don't know but yeah that that part I kind of some like, sort of text to speech type thing yeah exactly <laughs> yeah the the like. I don't know. Like, I feel like arms dealers and sort of like sectarian religious stuff, like that stuff at least kind of makes sense. I feel like there's more of like a reality based, like that stuff happens. But then whenever it's just sort of like the, you know, random British guy or random American guy who decides like he's now hell bent on world destruction and setting off nuclear bombs, I'm just like, I don't know. I don't feel like that stuff is like, I don't, I don't really understand the motivation quite so well, but in this movie, whatever, suspension of disbelief it's fine and i i feel like i i never know with with henry cavill because i feel like i have always had sort of like a a weird like i'm rooting for him which feels weird it's like rooting for the warriors or something like that like like he's (laughs) superman like he's this super handsome british guy like why why do i need to root for him but um i do like him as superman i think as much as superman's kind of like maybe not as complicated a character as he could be um i think he's sort of embodies i think superman well and then I did like Man from Uncle um, a lot, in which he plays um, a spy named an American spy named Napoleon Solo. That's a really fun movie, mm-hmm. um, and I feel like that probably is what made me kind of like Henry Cavill um, a lot more. So, if people haven't seen that, that's a that's an enjoyable movie. So, it's but a great anyway. one full of people like that. Like yes. Army Hammer was also someone who, <laughs> wow, this guy is so handsome and his family is also beautiful. He does not need and any rich. help. rich, yeah. Yeah, like he is so rich. He is so rich. But <laughs> I just want him to get his movie. And yeah, that movie is like, what if an issue of GQ but a movie? And it is so much fun. <laughs> yes. And it's just yeah. so level pretty the, like italian the, the italian scenery the soundtrack um it's got that like it's obviously a kind of a retro vintage spy movie type thing it's uh, it's definitely a lot of fun um a lot of fun all right so what what ha- i don't know what haven't we talked i mean um it, this is my favorite mission impossible movie um mm-hmm. I, I, I mean it, do you guys would you guys feel any differently is there any other movie you'd say is is close for you no. obviously we've talked about how different they are yeah i mean I really think this is it. Maybe before we, we move on to the rankings, I just want to give a quick shout-out to Vanessa Kirby, who plays yes. the White Widow, um, which is one of the things you, you were talking about, Frank, is like the sort of unconvincing nature or maybe even just like disinterest in like the sort of anarchist in the series, like Solomon Lane, or I don't even remember the name of the villain in uh, Ghost Protocol. He does so little at the very end. But, like, the people who are really interesting in this world to me are the people who are, like, in the gray areas. Like, Vanessa Kirby as the White Widow is a black market arms dealer. Without her, the plutonium does not move. But she's also involved with the government. Um, Or the first film has Max, who I think we're supposed to take to be her mother in this movie. Yes. Yeah. Um, That's a little little Easter egg that that they threw in (laughs) plot-wise. Yeah. 
Uh, and they do have very similar mannerisms. Um, but, like, Max is an interesting character. And even um, the, the only, I think, truly great villain the series has ever given us is Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, character of um, Owen Davian in the third film is also that sort of, like, black market dealer. Like, that sort of just acquiring of these things and accumulation of wealth like that sort of thing is really interesting in these movies and seems like it could if given a sort of more considered touch could actually hit at the larger thematic things I think the movie would possibly want to do. I mean McQuarrie is an Oscar writing screenwriter. He clearly thinks about these larger themes. There's a reason we have the repeated line of for there to be great peace there must be great suffering or whatever it yeah. is. Um but it's greater just, the suffering, the greater the peace. The greater the suffering, the greater the peace. <laughs> uh, and then Wolf Blitzer walks out and gets his mask off. <laughs> um, but it's like, it's those people in the middle. And that's what, I mean, Rebecca Ferguson was one of those people too, right? Yep, in yep. Um, Rogue Nation. That person who is, yes, a part of MI6, but also involved in this sort of anarchist network. And like those people, like, those are the ones that I think the movie it, it works best. The series works best best with. One thing I wanted to add was in that the White Widow scene as they're coming up to the house, and I'd mentioned this before, but uh, that mansion, palace, whatever you want to call it, um, as they're driving up to it, I thought like the score was kind of dark and ominous, and when I think through Mission Impossible, I don't necessarily think of like dark, ominous. Um, it, it was just interesting. I think so often it's played a little more um, action-y. This is a spy thriller. Like It's very fast-paced, moving quickly. We gotta go, we gotta go. But like there it was like kind of played slow, and it was played like some longer, ominous tones. And I was just like, okay, like this, it, it was another spot where, again, it's just like kind of intensifying things. Like they've gotten better and better at this movie. But to me, the score in this one like felt like more of a, like it helped bring out all of the emotion and all of like the tension of all of those scenes. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, I mean, this is a movie that is like so much fun but does get pretty unspeakably dark i mean there's a dream sequence in that mansion where cruises and a team of people just like systemically murder wave after wave of policemen mm -hmm. um and the score yeah it, it's doing that sort of thing um the score is interesting in this one it's done by a guy named lorne balf who's like kind of not quite a total unknown um, I think he's involved in, I think he works at Hans Zimmer Studios. He's done a couple movies like Sherlock Holmes and 13 Hours, the Benghazi movie that Michael Bay made. Um, but he's mostly, like, he hasn't really had, like, his huge breakthrough, breakthrough score or anything. Um, but, like, one of the things these movies love to do is they love to deploy that theme song which is one of the greatest theme songs in the history of theme songs. And this one continually finds like novel ways to do it. Uh, the last two scores were done by Michael Giacchino, who's like one of the most consistently working um, film composers in Hollywood right now. Uh, won the Oscar for the Up score. He does a bunch of the Pixar stuff. He did like the Rogue One score. He did the score for the last two Jurassic World movies. Um, and he, I think, was obsessed with like 
what do I do to the theme itself? Like when I bring in the theme, how do I make that theme fit my thing? And if you watch like Rogue One, I think, and Jurassic World, he's doing the same thing. He's like, okay, they're iconic themes. How do I do that theme but my own way? This one, I think it was more obsessed with like the lead up to it. Like there's one sequence, um, I think it's, it might be at the end of the Wolf Blitzer sequence where that like we just keep getting these like really, really, really fast notes that feel like we're leading up to that score and the credit sequence and we're going to get it and it's Mission Impossible Fallout, we're here. But it just takes so, so long <laughs> to build build to that. And uh, it, it really is what gives helps give that movie, the movie that it's like constant sort of propulsion. This is not a movie that stops. Like even scenes... Like the one you mentioned earlier, Frank, where Ving Rhames is just talking to Rebecca Ferguson. Like those are the quiet moments of the movies. And past films, um, I think Ghost Protocol especially, have found those moments to be difficult to deal with. Like how do we keep this interesting? We just climbed the tallest building in the world. What do we do now that they're talking? Um, And this one does two smart things, the score and also Jeremy Renner is not in it. So... (laughs) Two things I think make those talky scenes a lot better. You know, I was I was gonna say, and I wanna I wanna watch the movie again now. I've seen it twice. I wanna watch it again to like pay attention to some of the score stuff because I I feel like that what you were describing there, um, and and one of the interesting things is um, one of the ways they wanted to make this movie different when Macquarie wanted to make a different film because he, if he was coming back was they talked about taking Ethan Hunt to like a much darker place than he previously had been and. I don't know. I'm a little. I'm a little unclear because it seems like there may like the way I, I understood the way he was describing it, it sounds like almost like they kind of reeled it back in the end because, like, it's almost like they realized well we can't actually have Ethan Hunt kill cops to go along <laughs> right. with the thing. But I think that was part of some of the early concept of the movie was that this would be like Ethan Hunt going further than he ever has before in order to complete a mission. And obviously they, you know, there are probably two obvious scenes right where he basically has the flash forward of as you're saying killing cops and then they show him obviously doing something very different Uh and then also the scene where you know he basically decides to risk the entire mission and and the team in order to not kill that french policewoman who has the bad fortune of seeing them you know open a door and then uh try Mm -hmm. to smuggle solomon lane off by the way feels like really basic like bring a car that has a big enough trunk for the villain and put the villain in the trunk before you open the door <laughs> to the outside i don't know guys i don't know guys that just seems like spy 101 type stuff but, um but i thought one of the things was like i think there were portions of the movie where it was like the soundtrack was like it had that sort of like droning menacing feeling that yeah. i think of more like i saw a sicario 2 recently mm-hmm. day of the soldado which i enjoyed i've enjoyed both sakari really i haven't i haven't watched the second one yet i'm scared I, to watch I, it i thought the second one was really like shockingly enjoyable like i mean it's not going to be as good as the first one fine but um but in terms of if you like the first one okay. just in terms of like characters like benicio del toro being a badass like uh, sign me up right but yeah. there's a lot of like kind of drony sort of like ominous yeah. scenes like where you're in the chopper in the truck waiting for you know you know shit's gonna go down and like you know it's sort of like these really tense things building to that or like i think i think zero dark 30 also had st- similar stuff you know kind of mm-hmm. like feelings like that and there were there were definitely some scenes like that in this movie which you know for a movie like this where the the set pieces are so long and so intense. Um, there aren't even that many <laughs> quiet moments to even really, you know, breathe during. But um, but yeah, I, th- I thought that was really interesting. That's kind of one of those things I want to go back and listen to. Um, let me ask you guys: 
we've talked about, you know, some of the, I mean, there's the set pieces, there's the quiet moments. We've talked about some of each, but give me, I've got like one or two scenes that I, I think kind of stand out for me as like, you know, the things I'll always, you know, that, that stand out like a phone. I think about what makes this movie like so enjoyable, so awesome. Um, let me hear, what do you guys think? If you had to highlight one or two scenes is that you thought were just awesome, whether, you know, JJ, you may, you may be able to take us in the more sort of, uh, you know, intellectual side of this, given your background, <laughs> film, but, um, or just things that were fun and awesome and cool. Um, what kind of stood out to you? I was going to say, uh, I'll go first, JJ, cause you ahead. can do it better than me. The first <laughs> I one was, I, I enjoyed the hat tips to anyone who knew what kind of lunatic Tom Cruise is like the, like having a, like having someone jump out of the plane with Tom Cruise, like do that halo jump. Like you, you had to have someone do that with him. And like, if you watch like the behind the scenes of that all happening and the fact that the, the cameraman had a camera on his head, like that was it. Like he had to mm-hmm. run backwards, jump backwards and just like try to get Tom Cruise framed up in a shot. Like, that's insane. So, like, the fact that you kind of got to see that in the movie and then, you know, Henry Cavill's character screwing up that jump, like, again, it like, you only can know this if you know what kind of insane lunatic Tom Cruise is, but, like, just, like, the hat tip to anyone who did that Henry Cavill screwed this up, but to get this shot, we also had to have a cameraman do this with Tom Cruise, and only Tom Cruise is crazy enough and insane enough to actually perfect this. I thought it was great. Also, uh, the scene where he breaks his ankle, like, the jump that he made, I yeah. <laughs> adored that coming out of that, he was limping. Like, they had him limp out of that jump, like, if you if you remember that scene. And it's just, like, again, another hat tip to anyone who knows what type of insane lunatic Tom Cruise is. Like, you're getting that hat tip, like, oh, you can enjoy this. And it kind of speaks to what J.D. said, like, during this action stuff, you just end up laughing uh, at the end of it, like, oh my gosh, what an insane lunatic Tom Cruise is. And I just enjoyed those two hat tips quite a bit. And then um, I mentioned... The fight scene, I thought, and again, fight scenes are always something that I think people can at time fetishize, like as you're trying to think through movies and all this incredible fight scene. But I mean, that bathroom scene is the best fight scene uh, in, in a Mission Impossible movie, and I thought it was awesome. Yeah, uh, I mean, one of the things I've loved about this movie, Eric, um, and it's not just you, Frank, who's been researching this thing, is like, it feels like a movie that wants you to do research about it. <laughs> And not to unpack its themes or ideology or stuff like that, but it's having people actually unpack the craft of the thing, which is what I study, (laughs) and that's great. Um, If you guys haven't, um, I know the two of you have, but there's a a two-minute featurette. Uh, If you just search Mission Impossible Halo Jump, you can see everything they had to do to prepare (laughs) for that actual stunt. Um, and it's not, so they built this like gigantic wind machine so Cruz could practice on the ground, this sort of choreography, because the concern wasn't only that he was doing the halo jump, which on its own is incredibly dangerous, but he was like, I need to do something while I do it. I can't just do the jump. I need to go interact with another person. So he had to work out the choreography a long time on the ground. Um, there's similar stuff, uh, coming out now that, the movie's been out for a little bit about the um, the helicopter scene at the end, too, um, where Cruz was actually holding the IMAX camera rig while flying the helicopter at certain <laughs> moments. Um, and I think it was on, uh, speaking of podcasts you've listened to, Frank, I think it was on The Big Picture Show with Sean Fennessy that McQuarrie said, like, multiple countries denied them access to shoot 
that scene because they didn't want Tom Cruise essentially to die shooting the movie. Uh, and then New Zealand was like, sure, you can come on in and shoot that. Um, and I think, I mean, honestly, I mean, it feels like a, a joke, but it's not. I mean, some of my favorite parts of this movie are the behind the scenes things, just knowing what went into it and having people care about that. Um, but like you, Eric, uh, the, the bathroom scene is a, a marvel. I love this movie, like this movie series when it's working as a stunt film, like as stunt films. But uh, the, the bathroom scene is this movie's opera scene from uh, mm. Rogue Nation. It is a, a line of action that is so just clearly cut throughout. Um, it reminded me a lot, uh, although it lacks like the weird sort of like digital filtering of um, Steven Soderbergh's Haywire. It reminds me a lot of that film. Um, and if any of you follow me on Twitter, you know I have talked about that film a lot and I love it so much. Um, but it's a scene that's committed again to its performers. It is cut based around how they move, how they react to the punches, and how we then as viewers can piece together that action. So, I mean, a lot of action movies now, of course, do cut a lot. And I'm not saying this is a long take. It's not like a nine-minute fight scene with no cuts. Um, because that would look bad, probably. Cruz needs oxygen. He just did a halo jump. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's a scene that's cut where the cuts often arrive just after a punch or sometimes just before a punch. So the punches make maximal impact, but where the cuts come to when the action has shifted slightly. So Cavill will be hit and he'll be sidelined. And then a cut comes that brings us away from looking at just the fake John Lark and Cavill to now seeing all three of them, John Lark standing up, Cavill on the ground, Cruz in the back, ready for his turn to fight. Um, and it just it just feels like there was thought put into the action scene, yeah. uh, to the fight scene, which doesn't always happen. They do feel perfunctory, but there's real choreography there, cutting that helps you understand the story and the character and the emotion, but just an intel like a, a commitment to intelligibility of action that, because of whatever creative impulses I have in my own head, I really 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 enjoyed. Also, the mirrors, like using the mirrors in the bathroom, That's, I thought, oh, so good. Yeah, yeah the it, mirrors in all of the, the pair sequence, glass, like glass yeah. everywhere, that, that hallway they walk through. Like, if I ever get to walk through a hallway like that, I'll know, like, something went right. <laughs> I mean, I probably switched career paths. <laughs> uh, academia, we don't really do that. We're in, like, Hilton's or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, having our convention next to like furry conventions that's not a bit that's a real thing that happened a couple years ago at our big conference but um yeah that 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 hallway the use of glass in that entire sequence is just incredible it it's also like it it's probably the best um it's probably the best uh you know action like fight sequence in a mission impossible movie but it's also the best one of the best fight scenes turned into trailer fodder of like any movie like watching yep. that those scenes in the trailer and you get a like a sense of just like the physicality especially of henry cavill's character with the like arm rip thing <laughs> <It's>, you know <laughs> the little machine gun thing like that had me so pumped to see that movie and then you know truth be told i mean for me that's like the third best set piece, piece of the movie like like mm -hmm. i'm i was much more into the helicopter thing even like the car chase motorcycle chase stuff like oh, that to me was gosh. kind of 
was kind of we cooler. We haven't talked about those car chases. Yeah. Well, hey, we can. We can. But um, so <laughs> I would I would say like if I was going to pick one action and one non-action scene, um, I would go. I have to go to the helicopter chase. I I, I mean. These movies, starting with the Burj Khalifa, you know, and, and for people who don't who don't remember maybe all the details, but basically where Tom Cruise is using the suction cups on the massive <laughs> uh, skyscraper in Dubai, beginning with that, like each of these movies have just they have sequences where like you're literally holding your breath and you know that Tom Cruise did not die, but you kind of feel like he should die. And mm-hmm. um, I think this is such a huge piece of these movies because we've gone so far into like the CGIification of films that you know we talk about like stakes like what are the stakes for characters right like you know if you know if you think that a character could die it it amplifies the tense tension and the interest in a movie right with with these movies there are stakes that are like real life for tom cruise like like i am more invested in these movies because as i'm watching him i'm thinking he could if this was me i would die doing this i would die i would die within three seconds if i was doing what what he's doing in this movie for real and obviously in certain parts he has like some wires and things like that as sort of backup but um the way he risks his life you know this sort of again this sort of i was a huge jackie chan fan sort of in my late teens early 20s um and there is sort of like that feeling of when you're watching it and you know that he's actually doing this stuff you know you laugh when you see it's like oh my god how did he do that? Or you're deathly afraid and nervous because you're afraid of heights and you're basically, you know, feeling it for him as you see him hanging from this building or, or from a cliff or whatever. Um, yeah, that the the Burj Khalifa se- sequence has that that first shot of Cruz looking out the window after it's been opened mm. and the camera, like, it, it's a Brad Bird thing and I, I mentioned his name earlier, so I gotta give him his props. But the camera moves forward and then climbs cranes up above his back and then looks down and does that sort of vertigo shot that lengthens like the camera's moving as the zoom lens is being changed too that lengthens how far it actually looks down and there is something about like the the tactile nature of that image where it is like this isn't a cgi creation this is like a real building and we are watching a camera on a rig go outside of it and see exactly how far it is with a little bit of sort of intensification from the lens uh how far it is from there to the ground and then we're going to watch this madman <laughs> actually climbed that building and yes he has wires that are taken out in post-production but like i'm still not doing that i'm not getting yeah. outside of the world's house building no matter how strong the wires are it's that like it it's not only that he does it the films know how to let you know he's actually doing it right and that was really interesting if you watch the please if you guys are interested in the movie i'll watch the featurettes the one on the helicopter stuff is fascinating basically he took a three-month course with Airbus <laughs> in which you become like, you know, basically rated to fly, not even do stunts, but like rated to fly. He did it in six weeks. He basically had two crews. <laughs> it's like eight hours a day. He was like, you know, the, the Macquarie story guy was like, well, eight hours a day, you know, every day you're doing this. He's like, well, what am I doing with the other 16 hours of the day? And so like, okay, well, I guess we can have two crews working with you. Um, and so he did this in six weeks. And he, you know, the, the, the stuff about him flying the helicopter is amazing. I mean, they had to put it in these rigs to make it obvious to you as a viewer that he is actually flying this, right? And, and there's not somebody in the back seat with, with the joystick doing this. Um, and especially the scene where he's doing like kind of this corkscrewing thing down into a valley, you know, that, that's like that's real like that. And, and my dad was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. And so I've read a little bit about just sort of helicopter stories from back then and you know like it's incredible like some of the stories of my dad shout out to my dad um 
you know, like flying at night in, you know, the late 1960s, like the, just like the, the technology that was available then and the risk of doing this kind of stuff. And, you know, okay, like that was during a war here, you know, he's kind of bringing it upon himself by chasing after a guy <laughs> with a machine gun. Um, but just like the skill of flying a helicopter is, is incredible. I mean, it is not something that, you know, you can just go learn in six weeks, but obviously Tom Cruise more or less did that. And, <laughs> Um, watching the making of and and the stuff he's having to do, it's it's incredible. And obviously, there's a lot of care done to try to, you know, make it as safe as possible. And I think they said they had like 13 helicopters total, and they've got, you know, they need helicopters to shoot the helicopters, and they need to do shots, you know, with the cameras on the helicopter, and then they need to do shots without the helicopter having cameras on it because you need the external shots. So it, it's just amazing. I, I like the the bare, you know, the white knuckle sort of effect that you have watching the helicopter sequence. And obviously, there's some stuff that's like CGI. I'm sure to give the impression of how close they are to like the the sides of the the um, ravines and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. um, but I mean, most of this is like I mean, yeah, they they freaking flew those helicopters, and <laughs> Tom Cruise was flying one of those helicopters. It's it's incredible. It's one of I don't know. I like off the top of my head, I'm not sure I've. I can think of like just a cooler scene. I mean, we've seen tons of cool car chases, right? Like lots of great car chases. There's some great car chases, motorcycle chase in this one, but a helicopter mm. chase, the stars <laughs> actually find the helicopter. Like <laughs> to me, that's like, I, I don't know like what you can compare that to in terms of like, you know, the, the, the pantheon of, of amazing stunts. Um, and then I think if I was going to choose a non action scene that really kind of stood out that I, that I loved, um, it's the scene in which, um, uh, Ilsa Faust is sort of stalking after, well, not stalking, that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> but she's basically following him through mm-hmm. Paris. And then at the end, he sort of like, you know, turns the tables and he's standing at the end of um, this like courtyard. And it's from her perspective. And then they do this synchronized walk to the left, to her left. And they mm-hmm. go into sort of this like row of trees. And so it's sort of them going from out in the open to in this line of trees. And it's this like really beautifully shot sequence. And you see them walk up to each other. You see them standing face to face. There's like all this like great symmetry and sort of choreography to it that doesn't feel like forced. Um, but I thought it really underscores, I think, one of the really important dynamics of these last two movies, which has made them so great, which is that, you know, again, there is a female character who's new and who is basically Tom's, you know, Tom Cruise's equal as like the super spy. And mm-hmm. I think that was this. And, you know, a lot of the, I mean, some of the dialogue is, you know, it's like kind of what you would expect, right? It's like, Oh, I don't want to go through you, you know, walk away, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yep. Cause they care for each other and they're, they each have these things they're trying to get. So there's this sort of like, you know, I think that's, I think that's where she reveals like that she's doing this cause she has to kill lane to be allowed to be, you know, a normal person again. Um, <laughs> so there is sort of an expository value to it, but I thought they do it in a way that's like really cool. And it, you know, you could have done it in a really sort of simple way that wouldn't have had sort of, I think some of the, you know, maybe maybe it's subtle. And you, I don't think you never necessarily even think about it, but it wouldn't have underscored. I think some of the just some of the like really good dynamics that that really exist throughout these two movies between Rebecca Ferguson and, and Tom Cruise. And to be honest, like the irony of like Jeremy Renner being brought in is like, oh, could he eventually, you know, take over the franchise? Is like Rebecca Ferguson is like a million times more interesting and cool and awesome and badass than Jeremy Renner like ever is in any of these movies. Um, <laughs> So, like, if anybody, if there's anybody who, like, I would want to sort of take more of the control, and not that I expect this to happen, but, like, 
it would be Rebecca Ferguson. Like she's she's awesome in these movies. Um, and like I said, I think she's kind of been like the thing that differentiates the last two in particular from from the rest of the franchise. So th- that was kind of my act, my favorite kind of action thing versus um, non action piece. And and again, like I I can't say enough about it. I, I, I definitely wanted to bring her up because um, she's yeah. really great. She doesn't necessarily do all her own stunts. I guess they have a uh, like world world renowned motorcyclist who actually does does her, her motorcycling thank god which, thank god <laughs> I don't, I don't, yeah we, we can't was, lose we're gonna lose tom cruise at some point like i don't want to lose rebecca Ferguson as well. yeah that that second scene you point out frank is uh it, it is it is really subtle um moving filmmaking i think i've seen a couple people compare this one to like michael mann um the director of collateral and thief and heat um and I don't see it <laughs> for most of the film, except for that sequence, um, because it is so much about these two figures moving within like these really gorgeous sort of architectural um, behemoths and then finding that space in that repeating motif of the trees. And then like a Michael Mann movie, you understand everything from how it's staged and how it's shot and how the characters move their eyes, and it probably works better with the dialogue off. So, like, that sequence is amazing. Um, and there's just so much work done, especially with their eyes, like the way Cruz's eyes dart when he's talking to her, and the way her commitment is mostly locked in but averts his gaze at, at separate moments. It's really, really powerful stuff. If we are going to rank these, um, man, it's so hard, because like I said, I feel like the first three are so different. I think... I know that six would be my number one. I know that two would be my last yep. one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think then, we're all on the same board there. Yeah, and then it's kind of hard because it's like, like you guys said, like number one is just like a totally different kind of movie. Like it, mm-hmm. it's, it's much more of like a like spy drama movie than it's than an action movie. Like the whole final, you know, helicopter in the tunnel thing is like. I, I rewatched the movie recently. I mean, it's almost like kind of corny compared to like like mm-hmm. now what you expect. It, I don't know. It, it and maybe it's just because it's got like genre known as well. It feels much more like a Ronin style type movie than than like a Mission Impossible movie. So I feel like you almost need to like split them between, especially the first two from the last four, but but really the last three, first three from the last three. I guess um, the third one is probably the one that I I haven't seen that I saw the longest ago. Um, and I think I saw part, and that's only because I saw like parts of two, like randomly on at one point, not because I like love two, but I do remember loving it at the time <laughs> and it just hasn't aged well. So I'd say number two is last. I guess I'd probably say six is my favorite. And then probably five would be my second favorite. And then maybe I'd say the first one would be third. Number three would be fourth. And then, um, ghost protocol would be fifth, I guess. Is that does that mm. mean so? So basically, Fallout, Rogue Nation, uh, first one, uh, three, and then four, and then two. <laughs> <laughs> totally followed yeah. all of that. I followed all you of it. There. Yeah, no, I'm there. <laughs> um, man, this is tough. I would say, huh. Three is a tough one for me because, as I kind of mentioned, I think the the addition of Simon Pegg, I think, is huge for me for the entire franchise. Like, I think that is when it, like, sort of starts to work. So him getting introduced in three um, is somewhat important, I feel like. Like, that it needs to kind of be a part of it. And then, I mean, on 
on top of that, you uh, you get Philip Seymour Hoffman just being devilish and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I suppose. And uh, that that is kind of what makes it tough for me because I do feel like uh, they sort of found their stride as this, you know, stunt as JJ mentioned, like as this stunt based film franchise in the final three um man i think i probably go six six five three one four two Ugh, i don't know if i feel good about it but i'll just say that wow you guys hate ghost protocol what's going on i i don't i do i do not hate ghost protocol at all <laughs> I, don't, um, I just i just I'm feel sorry. almost yeah i just feel almost guilty ranking them six five four and then the other stuff, <laughs> the other stuff. <laughs> um also uh un, I, i'm i was always a big maggie q fan who was in three um i feel like she's like just never really kind of figured out how to be as famous as she should be um but i was uh, shout out to maggie q for being in the third one as well <laughs> Um, what do you mean? You don't think the Divergent movies are hitting super hard right now? <laughs> I, I didn't even know she was in those, so I guess not. Oh, yeah, she's in all three. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, uh, yeah, poor Maggie Q. Shout out Maggie Q. Um, I like you guys. I think, I think Fallout's, I mean, recency bias aside, uh, I think it just hits a level of, like, stunt work that puts it above um, any action movie, really, even, like, Ooh, I don't want to go that far. I don't know if I love it more than my beloved Haywire. Guys, see Haywire. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think Fallout would be my favorite. Um, Rogue Nation, I love. The opera scene is like uh, this Hitchcock sequence snuck into a $180 million movie. Um, and just so, so well told. And the whole thing never loses steam. Um, and it has that, that beautiful sort of like chiaroscuro like knife fight at the end. Um, it's just so much fun. And Rebecca Ferguson in that movie is just uh, just a real knockout. Um, I would put the first one third. Uh, I think it's weighty. I love the fact that like this is the first movie in the franchise and they kill off pretty much everyone people would know from the TV show in the first 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, and also like kind of the movie's second biggest star, um, in Emilio Estevez. (laughs) So, uh, I love that. I think Max is awesome. I love when he logs onto the computer and he's like, I need to find out Max. And he goes to max.com. Uh, and (laughs) use net group, man, use net group. (laughs) But I do, I do especially love the first one. It, it, it has like a real, like melancholic tone to it. And it has that awesome sequence where Cruz is hanging inside of the CIA building, Mm -hmm. uh, with those glasses. Um, and he just looks, looks great. Um, uh, I, ghost protocol would be my fourth, um, I think the movie sags at the end, but it has that 20 minutes in Dubai that are as good as like any 20 minutes in any other movie in this franchise, if not better. Uh, It has the great prison break at the beginning. Um, It also has uh, the really fun uh, sequence in like the parking structure. Um, which feels super, super Brad Bird for me. So Brad Bird, who directed that movie, it was his first time ever directing a live-action film. Uh, He's an animated director known for doing The Iron Giant, The Incredibles, and 
Ratatouille, and then recently The Incredibles 2. We will not speak of Tomorrowland, his other live-action movie. Um, but that sequence just feels so... like It's like a Pixar movie. It's like the end of Monsters, Inc., um, with all these like different moving parts and cars falling from different levels. Um, it's super, super fun. Um, and uh, my own personal version of Maggie Q... And also, uh, Robin Thicke's version of Maggie Q is Paula Patton, who yeah. is good. so good yeah. in that movie. Um, she has that yellow dress at that one like dinner yeah. party. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, that's what a spy movie is. People wearing beautiful clothes, looking beautiful, doing duplicitous stuff. Um, three would be my fifth. Uh, I love Philip Seymour Hoffman in it, but <laughs> I already commented on the domestic scenes. Um, and it doesn't really have like an action sequence that that sticks for me. I think Hoffman is incredible. It also carries like the I don't even know if that's true given his recent um, output. It carries one of the worst Kanye West songs um, ever made. He made a song called Impossible for Mission Impossible Three, uh, and man, real real mark against that movie. Um, <laughs> but it is crazy that Twista was on a song for the Mission Impossible franchise as well. Uh, and then finally, yeah, two. Best hair of all the movies. Has a real fun motorcycle <laughs> sequence at the end. But the problem is not that John Woo directed it. It's that he didn't direct it until like the last 20 minutes when it becomes a John Woo movie and it's insane. Otherwise, it's kind of boring. But my wife has watched it uh, 40 times on VHS. It was the only VHS like her house had. And that's your favorite one. So... <laughs> I'll have different experiences. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's it's kind of interesting. I think the one I want to end on was, so we've all got Fallout tops. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting, and I think probably, I, I don't know the exact dates of it, but I think there's a lot of, not not parallels, but the Jason Bourne movies come out, what, like it's starting in the early 2000s, I think, early mid-2000s, yeah. I think they start to come out. And um, we're very successful. in Bourne Identity. Okay, yeah, and so kind of like gave i think a kick in the ass to like that the mission impossible franchise and it it's weird though because i feel like in a lot of ways it took until like four five and six for it to like really be like oh okay now we need to show like why matt damon and the born franchise are like cute and that was nice you guys did that but this is like what a real like massive action <laughs> star movie should look like um mm-hmm. and i think there were like parts like like for me like you know the the part like the action scenes in born i think they were doing like you know, they made it really like a fist fight movie in a way that that Mission Impossible never was until, you know, it's kind of gotten more of that in the last couple maybe. But, mm-hmm. um, but they also use a lot of like like really quick cuts and like you know like watching it like I'm not convinced that Matt Damon can do Oof. anything actually. Like it just to me it's like just sort of you know the, I'm I'm used to again watching like Jackie Chan long cut like real martial artist type stuff and I was like watching Jason Bourne I was like all right I see what you did here like well done <laughs> faking it but this is yeah I'm not convinced. <laughs> um, but I think the thing, too, was, like, for me, Jason Bourne, like, the first movie, it's like, hey, this is really interesting. But then, like, from a charisma, like, character standpoint, it's, like, a guy who had his memory erased. Like, that's, yeah, he's not that interesting of a person because mm-hmm. he, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't really remember anything. Versus Ethan Hunt, you know, like, the early movies where he's this sort of, like, fiery, like, the, the scene with him and Henry Cerny in the first one where he's, like, you know, you've never seen me very upset. And there's, like you know sort of like cruise rage sort of like some sequences and we see less of that now it's more like the sanded around the edges version of of tom cruise but 
it's still there, you know, like like the the Tom Cruise-ness of the character is still there in a way that like Matt Damon, I don't just don't think he ever really can be an action star. And I when I think about coming out of Fallout, I mean, we were DMing about it. I was just like, you know, this is better than certainly any Bourne movie that I've seen. I'm not a huge fan of the Bourne movies. And I, I there's no there's no like Bond movie that I hold just sort of like as a like a true movie. Like I love the James Bond movies in general, but there's no like Bond movie where I like you know hold it in this sort of regard or feel like it it sort of brought the same stakes and and elevated sort of the action to to the level of, of Fallout. I'm trying to think. I mean, putting it just in the category of like kind of just like action spy whatever stunt movies. You know, ignoring like sci-fi movies and you know just pure cgi type movies like is this one of i mean is this like sort of like as as sort of like just fun and riotous awesome movie going i mean is there a better just action movie than than fallout obviously we've got huge amounts of recency bias but um like for me we just looking at these last couple movies these last two three movies i don't know i'm, I'm not sure if there's like any other movies like i'd call out unless you maybe say like edge of tomorrow would be one in the last few years that's you know also similar but that's a sci-fi movie so i kind of like throw that out but um mm. i don't know like i feel like the, these movies have just sort of like kind of elevated the sort of idea of like an action stunt movie in a time when things are obviously in a lot of ways kind of moving away from kind of like real real stunts real stakes type stuff and everything just being you know franchises with cgi and and that kind of stuff yeah, I know I'll get my film Twitter card taken away if I don't mention Mad Max Fury Road, which had a similar yeah, a sort really of reception. Movie. But uh, I didn't like that movie, so now I'm getting my film Twitter card revoked anyways. Um, but that's another one where it is that sort of like ongoing action, um, and it feels like it is as much about like what should an action movie be as it is an action movie itself. Like this movie and that movie both feel like arguments like action movies should be about stunts. They should be about like real locations and like, yeah, color grading is going to change how Mad Max looks or whatever. And we'll add some CGI fire so people don't die. And then this one will add a CGI cloud with lightning because Cruz is not actually going to go into the middle of a storm. But there's like a real commitment to the actual like, work of the craftspeople um on set not just in the studio afterwards on computers um i don't know i mean there are definitely spy films i respond to more but i don't know if there's an action movie uh, and especially if we're just considering the whole franchise there's not an action movie i think i i series i respond to more than the mission impossible films i i don't know if i i, I can't really think of anything like as i think through it um I don't, b- because George like smiley never climbed a, a helicopter or anything so because like i was kind of thinking through like sicario which is a movie like i really adore mm. but is that actiony is that more thrillery like i that like just for a pure action film, like I really struggle to think of something that can kind yeah. of compare. I'm trying to think too. I mean, uh, if we're moving back beyond like this century, I, I think Die Hard is kind of a perfect yeah. movie. Yeah. Um, and rewatched it a couple of years ago and just found it to be so formally tight and features unlike this one, a very convincing villain performance, which is still, I think the only thing this one's really missing is that great villain. 
But yeah, I mean, to put this movie in conversation with something like Die Hard already, I think is testament to how good it is. Yeah, and I think the Die Hard, and, and even, I think Die Hard, I mean, there was obviously a drop-off after Die Hard 1, but Die Hard 2, Die Hard 1, 2, 3 in particular, um, they're just like, I mean, again, you've got just like this great action star, and and mm-hmm. I think what's amazing about Die Hard is that was really the first time anybody let Bruce Willis be an action star. He was a moonlight, the moonlighting guy uh-huh. at the time. Um, so the fact that he in, like really reinvented himself, whereas obviously the Mission Impossible movies, you could say at the start, Tom Cruise was sort of like reinventing himself as an action star in these movies, but um, it's obviously been a probably a much longer sort of gestation for that to happen. And, and obviously, as we were saying, like really in the last like maybe three movies, has it felt like just Tom Cruise going peak full action star in, in every possible way? But but yeah, Die Hard, I think especially of of the, at the time, right? I mean, it's hard to compare obviously the the action stunts in Die Hard versus a movie like this because um, it just the ambitions were totally different. But as far as just like awesome action movies. Yeah, I would agree. Like Die Hard, absolutely one of my favorites growing up. And um, even what they did in the kind of the following ones, like just giving Bruce Willis like a canvas to go be Bruce Willis and be John McClane. Like those were those were uh, those were really awesome. Yeah, this also feels like an opportunity if anyone who is tuning into this Bucks podcast is still listening um, for me to try and get people to engage with an even older film. Um But if you're looking for a movie that I think um, will hit similar sort of um, moments as Mission Impossible Fallout, um, have either of you guys seen the Kira Kurosawa movie Yojimbo? I have not. So Yojimbo stars Toshiro Mifune. Um, You guys, if you don't know him by name, you have seen him before. He is sort of the iconic um, Japanese actor. Uh, He was also in a bunch of other Kurosawa films. Um, But this is a movie that is so much about his persona in the way that Fallout and Rogue Nation are about the Tom Cruise persona as well. Um, It's actually the movie that became the basis for A Fistful of Dollars, the Clint Eastwood movie, and then um, the Coen Brothers film Miller's Crossing. But he just plays uh, a samurai who finds himself uh, in the middle of like this Japanese village where two gangs are sort of running the town. Uh, and he plays the two sides off of each other. And there are some incredible sword fights. Uh, and just like, yeah, if I'm trying to think of my favorite action movies, I think I have to go all the way back until 1961 before I find one I, I like quite as much as this one. And obviously it's a very different film. He does not, there's no helicopter stunt work. Um, <laughs> where there are, I don't know, probably not too many helicopters available right then either. <laughs> but um, he you just does... got your you just got your film PhD card back. Right? <laughs> that film, though, so good he job. does at one point do a great stunt in a barrel, though. So there's that. Nice. I was I was going to say, like, I think I think what um, and I meant to bring it up earlier, but, you know, really, we've gotten to the point where, you know, like usually like the taglines like, it, you know, like it for like a Jack Reacher movie. I'm sure the tagline is probably like Tom Cruise is Jack Reacher. Right. But like. <laughs> yeah really what these movies have become is Jack Reacher is Tom Cruise. Like that's really what these movies are kind of about at this point. Like, you know, and I, and I don't, I've never read the town, the Jack Reacher books, but um, I've heard like, st- I've heard like the comment, like apparently like, you know, Oh, like Jack, Jack Reacher is actually supposed to be like six, two and like very different from Tom Cruise. It's like, <laughs> uh-huh. well, I don't care. I'm not, I'm not really interested in that guy. I'm interested in Tom Cruise though. And so, you know, pretty much like anybody, like you can you can kind of bend a lot of different plots to 
sort of Tom Cruise's archetype of a character and what we kind of like about Tom Cruise and make really fun, interesting movies. And and I feel like that's really what sort of this last decade has been, right? It's it's not Tom Cruise having to show that he can be these really different characters, but it's more Tom Cruise sort of just channeling his inner Tom Cruise-ness into the guy who's in Edge of Tomorrow and mm-hmm. in the Mission Impossible movies and, you know, all these different movies. And obviously occasionally doing kind of more of the, um, you know, more like like American Made, which I thought was really good and really enjoyable. That feels like much more kind of like older, like a, a movie Tom Cruise would have made 20 years ago. But um, but it's still really enjoyable and it still feels like it has sort of Tom Cruise-ness to it. And it's not like a lot of actors where it's like, oh, man, they can they're chameleons and they become like Daniel Day-Lewis. Right. Like I watched Daniel right. Day-Lewis movies. No idea what he would be like in an interview. Like I he becomes these characters and I, I don't know what who he is as a person. Tom Cruise he never loses his Tom Cruise-ness, which I think kind of speaks to what we love about like real movie stars, right? Like we mm-hmm. love that we kind of know what they're going to be and, and their like, you know, the, the, the likeness that they bring to that. And I, and that's kind of thing too. And we haven't talked about sort of, we've alluded to Tom Cruise's kind of sort of uh, real life zaniness, which I think translates <laughs> into his willingness to make these crazy stunt movies. Also, obviously some of his personal life stuff, um, I don't know. Like I, I get, I can totally understand if people are like, well, that Scientology stuff is really weird. I have a hard time enjoying him as, as an artist now. Um, mm-hmm. I can understand that perspective. I've just sort of like, I don't know, bucketed it and just said, you know what, whatever. Um, I, I'm going to enjoy these movies for what they are. Um, but it is kind of weird. Cause it's like on some level, I, I don't, I mean like a normal, like if Tom Hanks skewed, like had like become an action star, <laughs> He seems like a small guy. I don't think he's making these movies, you know, like I, I feel like you do need to be a really different sort of human being for better or worse right. to make movies like this and to strive to make, you know, these types of things where so much of the enjoyment and, and the incredibleness of the film is like the knowledge that the audience is like, wow, this guy probably could have slash should have died to doing this movie. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I, I have no idea if they're going to make... I mean, I, I assume they're probably going to make another Mission Impossible movie. Cause this yeah, one's this been one is racks. making so much money. It's do, it's so successful. Um, I'm almost nervous about it because I don't know how they can top it. But <laughs> I also didn't think they could necessarily make a better version of, of the last movie. So um, I guess we'll see. I, I guess the good news is Tom Cruise getting older means that he'll have to make something sooner rather than later. Because, um, you know, I don't know if Tom Cruise at 60 can make as good a movie as Tom Cruise at like 58. He's 56 now. So um, hopefully they get, hopefully they get started on it soon. And um, hopefully we've got something to talk in a couple years. We can bring you back JJ and talk about the next, the next time. <laughs> of Cruise course. Movie. And uh, talk about either they got smaller and he's on the ground now and the tone's different, or we'll talk about him dying in a movie. <laughs> we yeah, all watched exactly. in theaters and then clapped when he died because he wowed us. <laughs> You wowed us. In that way, yes, only Cruz and his crazy Scientology brain could. All right. I, I have no idea how many episodes this turned out to be, Eric. I don't know if we need to cut this up. This maybe have been ep- version uh, episode three of this podcast, or it may be episode one, and we just, just get it over with. I think it's the um, third but, week of, the third of week recording. Of yes. yeah. <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you, JJ, because this has been a lot of fun, and um, I love hearing your take and your more... Um, your deeper knowledge of film and what you can bring to it. Cause it definitely makes me feel like I have a better feel for, for, you know, obviously the context and, and also just sort of the, the things other than what you'd kind of normally watch for as a, as just a movie goer. So this is a lot of fun and hopefully there are Thanks, more guys. good movies that make us want to do this. 
Yeah, let's do it. I'm available. (laughs) 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 But thanks so much for having me on, guys. This has been a total blast.